Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to Fairy Gospel, a podcast where we discuss Disney classics from yesterday, today, and Tomorrowland from the perspective of a queer person of faith. But first things first, roll call. I'm Dustin, he, him. I identify as a gay man and spiritually as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hi, I'm Marianne. I use she, her pronouns. I identify as a lesbian and spiritually I'm Catholic. Hey, Marianne, welcome to the podcast. Before we get too deep into it, how about we give you a proper introduction and let's tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself, anything you'd like them to know. Go for it. Sure. So my name is Marianne. I work as a middle school dean of students at an independent Catholic school in New York City. I'm Cuban-American, and I grew up in uh, London, actually, which will be relevant to our conversation today, Um, and also here in New York, as well as in Miami. I serve on an LGBTQ ministry team at a Catholic parish. It's one of the largest Catholic LGBTQ teams or, or groups in the country. And I also volunteer for the Trevor Project, doing crisis counselor work for queer youth. And I'm a huge, unapologetic nerd. I love Harry Potter way more than is normal. And I have spent the pandemic perfecting my Animal Crossing island, which I've named Narnia. So very nerdy over here. (laughs) So Orlando must be your promised land for everything that's offered to you. (laughs) I'm so lucky. I got to go in February before the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I didn't know that you lived in London for a period of time. Yeah. From uh, the ages of six to 13, um, I lived in London. Wow. So that's going to make our discussion today even more fascinating now that I know that because we will be discussing. Peter Pan, which of course takes place in London. So now I'm really excited. So before we get into kind of the discussion of the topic, how about we bestow what I am calling a gospel on this episode? And basically a gospel is kind of like a one word blessing that we're going to place upon this episode. It's one word I chose, and then you chose a separate one. And it's basically a word that we got from watching the movie or something that came to mind after watching the movie or something we want the listeners to kind of take away from our discussion today and to also keep their mouse ears open for our specific words. So I'll let you go first. What gospel word did you choose? And then we'll get into the actual bestowing after after that too. Okay, so the word I chose is trust. And then I chose to do innocence. So now we're going to do the fancy bestowing. So would you like to go first on bestowing the gospel word? Why don't you go first and then I'll copy you. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So listeners out there, again, I'm going to explain how we're going to bestow this and we're going to do it in what I am calling the spelling D. Yes, I said D, D as in Disney, but we're going to follow the spelling B-like format. And so basically what we're going to do is we're going to state our word first. We're going to give a definition. I just go to Google, work smarter, not harder. Then we're going to do a disnified sentence, and then we're going to spell the word and then restate it. And with that and the magic of sound effects, we will bestow the gospel onto this episode. So here I go. I will go first with innocence. Lack of guile or corruption, purity. In the end, Mr. Darling remembered what it was like to have childlike innocence. I-N-N-O-C-E-N-C-E 
innocence. Okay, uh, so the word is trust. Uh, and trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Sentence is the darling children trust Peter Pan with their lives. That's T R U S T, trust. Okay, and now with that, we can get into the discussion of our movie that we chose to discuss today. And so before we get into the actual meat of this discussion, you actually chose Peter Pan. So tell me a little bit about uh, why you chose it. Sure. It is probably my favorite Disney movie for many, well, I say for many reasons, but it's really just one reason. (laughs) And it's because um, as a child, I wanted to be Wendy. She lives in a in a house in London, very similar to my room. Looked exactly like her room. Oh, wow! <laughs> um, I had a window like that. I was sort of, you know, I had brown hair. <laughs> I had all these fantastical stories in my head, and I was sort of unhappy in in my life in in the way that so many queer kids are. You know, most queer kids know that there's something different about them. You know, they say from the ages of seven to 11, we sort of figure out that there's something different about us. And sometimes we're lucky enough to know exactly what it is, but a lot of the time we don't. And when I was 11, 10, 11 years old, I had no idea what it was, but I knew that like I was different and I knew that my home situation was not good for me. I knew that my parents were against sort of whatever I wanted to be in this life. So the idea of just flying out of my bedroom window and going with, let's face it, Peter Pan is a lesbian. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so the idea of this like gorgeous person showing up and taking me and my brothers or friends off on this fantastical adventure was one that really appealed to me as, as a kid, you know, and in the original, the original play, right, it was 1901, I think, when J.M. Barry wrote it, and then Disney got the rights. It was such a British thing, and, like, I was surrounded by this story in the UK. And not only did I love the Disney movie, but the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, and, like, the pantomimes were very popular. And in those, Peter is played by a woman. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> this story has always really resonated with me, this idea of being trapped as a kid and then being able to escape. And when you actually get to Neverland, there's all kinds of trouble over there, right? Like Neverland is in no way a paradise, but in so many ways, like you can fly is that experience of coming out, right? That experience of taking a leap, trusting yourself, trusting the world and going off into what is hopefully a better life or a better place. And as we know, the real world is not perfect. It's not wonderful, but it does open up for you after you come out. So I've always seen this movie as a bit of a metaphor I've always identified so strongly with this girl. And yeah, just that opening scene. I, I can't even go on the ride in Disney World without oh, yeah. crying hysterically because the nostalgia of it and just the feeling of like escape, getting away from her parents or her father is so awful in that first scene, right? And my parents are huge homophobes. So for me, you know, I, I couldn't quite figure that out as a kid, but as an adult, I, I recognize what that's about. Oh, well, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. There's so many themes within this movie that I, I saw as well. Um, before we get into that, I just want to share kind of just some background on the film. Um, I'm always going to Disney.fandom.com, just kind of get a brief little 
background on it, just so that way everyone's kind of level set on kind of the background of the, the movie, which is kind of fun. So Peter Pan is a 1953 American animated fantasy adventure film produced by Walt Disney and based on the play Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up by J.M. Barry. It is the 14th film in the Disney animated canon and was originally released on February 5th, 1953 by RKO Radio Pictures. Peter Pan is the final Disney animated feature released through RKO before Walt Disney's founding of his own distribution company, Buena Vista Film Distribution. Peter Pan is also the final Disney film in which all nine members of Disney's Nine Old Men work together as directing animators. It is also the second Disney animated film starring Catherine Beaumont, uh, Heather Angel, and Bill Thompson after their roles in the animated feature Alice in Wonderland. And then a little bit more fun facts. Uh, The film was entered into the 1953 Cannes Film Festival. A sequel titled Return to Neverland was released in uh, 2002. And a series of direct-to-DVD prequels focusing on Tinkerbell began in 2008. A preschooler's television series featuring some of the characters, Jake and the Neverland Pirates, premiered in 2011. While not a big hit at first, it is considered to be one of the most well-known Disney films of all time. And so I thought that was really interesting. Once you think about it, back in the old days, there were cross voice actors that did multiple, and you can kind of recognize that. I know Winnie the Pooh. I mean, Catherine Beaumont, right? Catherine Beaumont is is famous for having like a transatlantic, like British American ish accent, and she was, I think, the the live action model for Alice, as well as. Uh, mm-hmm. Alice and Wendy. Yeah. And it's just like, and even Ka from the Jungle Book when he's uh, Sir Smithers or something. I can't remember. Slithers. I can't remember. Robin Hood. I can't remember his real name. Yeah, yeah, right. He's in a bunch of them. And you do, as an adult, you're like, wait a second. That's what we need to do. (laughs) Or Sir Hiss. It's Sir Hiss. It's Sir Hiss. I don't know why. (laughs) I got Smithers or Slithers. But anyways. Okay. So now, once upon a time, we're going to enter into this world of Peter Pan. And I've noticed that in a lot of these Disney movies, and I'm going to start making count, but this is like the fifth one that I've seen so far. We start up in the he- the heavens and we descend down into the world. So it's basically almost like God or, or whoever's deity that you're worshiping to. It's kind of their viewpoint down on civilization. And then we descend into basically human level to kind of start off. And this one has kind of a narrator's voice that starts. And uh, one of the phrases that he says, he says, all this happened before and all, and it will all happen again. And I, that really jumped out at me this time around because in a common theme that's throughout the Book of Mormon that we, we study as a Latter-day Saint is the, not necessarily the events happen over again. A lot of events are happening over and over again, but the themes happen over and over again within the Book of Mormon. And then now even in our modern day time, a lot of those themes are happening over and over again. And so I thought that was really interesting that it starts out by saying this all happened before and it will happen again. Like you're just entering in a pinpoint in time in this darling family that we just happen to peek in, but it's happened before it'll happen again, but this is just one snippet, which is kind of, if you think about it in the terms of like eternity and like, I don't know if you believe in like life after death or stuff like that, like this is just one small dot on the timeline of a human's existence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that opening narration, I I picked up on that same line because it's such a cool line. It's such a cool idea of like we are in this eternal sort of cycle. But the one I really picked up on was like, he Peter Pan came to this house because they believed in him. And that idea was is so interesting to me because there's so much like uh, we're always talking about like, well, what is faith and what does it mean to believe? And 
you know, what level of belief do you have? And the way children have faith and the way adults have faith is very different. And I think this film does a really nice job of setting up this like childlike faith where you have these kids who believe in this literal boy who shows up and flies them away, which does actually happen to them. <laughs> but it's very similar to the way that like Catholic children are taught in CCD, like about Jesus Christ and about Mary and these very real characters that sort of inhabit their their lives. And I always laugh that we tell kids at a certain point to stop believing in Santa Claus, but Jesus is real. <laughs> and it's like, you have to switch that sort of childlike faith um, into a more nuanced adult faith. But Peter Pan is definitely like firmly in that like literal children believing in a thing. Yeah, and definitely. And right off the bat, we see kind of that faith get tested because mm-hmm. we have the father. And I, I always heard this and I'm not sure if this is real, but isn't it tradition for the same actor in the plays who portrays the father to also portray Captain Hook? Because they did that with voice acting, and I I know they do it in plays as well. Yeah, usually it's the same actor, Hook and the dad, sometimes the mom and Tinkerbell, but not always. Um, And certainly it's it's the same voice actor in, in this movie. And yeah, so basically he comes in and I kind of saw this as kind of like a house divided in beliefs. Growing up, I I had friends that like the mom was a member, but the dad wasn't. And that caused contention between the one parent who didn't believe kind of saying that the beliefs were pan pirates and poppycock, like that sort of thing, which really created this contention within the household. But then also it's kind of like a house divided in beliefs as far as um, allowing your children to live as kind of their authentic selves. Yeah. Because there's these children that are like playing around saying, I'm a pirate, I'm a this and I'm a that. And then he goes, no, why are you filling these head, these children's head with nonsense? And that's kind of like sometimes what queer people of faith or even queer individuals in general kind of have to combat as well is they're saying, I, I'm starting to feel like I'm different. And this, these are the feelings that I'm feeling. And then some parents are quick to swoop in and say, that's nonsense. You need to stop that right now. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you on that. Um, there's definitely a lot of like anti-queer stuff coming out of the dad's mouth. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. As a queer person, you're like, oh, so you're a homophobe. <laughs> so to even kind of build upon that, I said George Starling decides that this is Wendy's last night in the nursery, uh, which in a way kind of ushers in the end of her childlike innocence. I said this is similar to parents deciding that our participation in kind of religious practices or their rash reaction to us coming out are their attempts to kind of remedy that situation. Like they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to put a stop to this right now, or you're going to continue on in these beliefs because you're still under my house sort of thing. So it kind of really does the opposite of what they're trying to do. It's like, they're coming at it from a place of I'm the parent. I know it's best, but in a way for queer people of faith, it kind of pushes us away and want us to fly out that window and get away from this captain hook that this, this parent is starting to become. Yeah, no, certainly. So Wendy is like, you know, 11 or something. She's just getting to puberty. And I know that in Catholicism, we do have like, you become an adult in the church when you get confirmed. And that can happen when you're around that age up until some people do it when they're like, we do it in eighth grade at my school. And once you're confirmed, you are an adult in the church, but they're children, right? Like today we recognize as like a 12, 13 year old is a child. And Wendy is in every way a child, but there's this idea of like, that's it. We have to stop this nonsense. You have to grow up. And the mom is kind of like sympathetic toward her. But when I see, you know, or if you put yourself in Wendy's position, right? 
what does growing up mean for a girl in 1901? It means she's going to get married, right? Like that's all she could possibly do. And she could only get married to a man, obviously. So looking at that as like a queer person or a queer woman, you're like, she's being threatened with the one thing that she certainly doesn't want. And she maybe doesn't quite know that, but growing up becomes this metaphor for me of like having to marry some guy. And in doing that and forcing her to do it, she rebels and rebellion, you know, all queer kids rebel in one way or another. And this is her rebellion. Leave the window open. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know? (laughs) And she's very open about it too. Like she tells her mom, oh, don't shut that. I'm about to rebel. (laughs) Mom's like, okay, that's creepy, but sure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And when you were saying that about how they become adult in the Catholic church at 11, in the LDS church, the age of baptism is eight. And yeah, so... I, at the time, I was just going kind of through the motions and like, okay, yeah, fine. I'm ready to know what's right from wrong. And now I'm accountable for all my sins from this for this time forward. But I just recently went to my two nephews, eight-year-old baptisms, I think it was two years ago, and they are babies. They are little babies. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, no. And we, we baptize it, you know, as a, as babies, we baptize like infants, mm-hmm. um, and then you sort of affirm your baptism at confirmation, which can happen really anywhere from like 12 to upwards of that. Um, some adults get confirmed if they haven't been. Yeah, because I can really relate to you on like seeing how Wendy is being forced to grow up and these these boys are being forced to grow up at an age where they're still literally in the nursery. Like <laughs> you're trying to force uh, because they're, they're showing inklings of thoughts or actions that aren't fitting what is suitable in in this father's eye of society and mm-hmm. something else too is like his his way of dealing with it is very like a tyrant like it's my way or the highway out and i i was like the, this type of tyrannical attitude only leads to chaos which is like stepping on anna's toe knocking over these things which ends up just hurting everyone he didn't get anything accomplished other than hurting himself hurting nana and then hurting the children's feelings by then banishing nana um, and this is a, this is another thing too, is Nana, who's the trusted caregiver, probably the most trusted over the father at caregiving at this point, she gets banished for simply being a dog. Like that's her one fault is being a dog. And so I was like, this is similar to like kind of queer individuals who are banished from their positions within church leadership, like youth leader, choir directors, simply for being queer. That's their one strike against them is they could be the best youth leader, the best choir director in the world. But the fact that they're Nana or they're a queer individual, they get banished from their position. And uh, I've heard of friends that have done that. I've, and it just like when I was seeing it this time around and Nana just accepts it because she knows there's nothing else she can do. She's like, yeah, I'm a dog. You're not wrong there. She's powerless. And and George Darling is like the symbol of toxic masculinity in Mm -hmm. this. Toxic masculinity is rampant throughout this entire text, but like he comes in and it's completely his way. And in so many ways, that's the way that at least the Catholic church operates where there is literally one guy, the Pope, and beneath him is a bunch of other guys, all of whom are saying, this is what, how we're going to do things and the way it's going to be. And everyone in the church, we always say is largely run by women, right? It's typically women who are the choir directors, women who are the teachers, women who run the sacristies and everything are at the whim of these men in dresses. Um, <laughs> that's like a very Catholic thing. Uh, and I, I so see that in George Darling. I'm like, oh, great. Are the, oh, my. Just 
telling everybody what to do. And yet Nana is completely banished for no good reason. She's definitely, it's definitely different that this dog is the caretaker for these children. But in so many ways, queer kids find queer mentors who sometimes then they're no longer allowed to be around. So that's another connection where you're like, oh, huh. Wendy and her brothers are getting comfort taken away. Toxic masculinity is getting involved. And well, guess what happens? <laughs> they fly out the window. It also causes them to start questioning their faith or their trusts and their beliefs. There's that scene where John is sitting there. And he goes, he called Peter Pan absolute poppycock. Oh, Almost like this person that I have all this belief in could he be poppycock? And then that sort of thing. So he like, in this effort to try and make them look at things in his way, he basically shattered their poor little worlds. And we don't know what effects that's going to happen going forward. Wendy, it leads to rebellion. And John and Michael, they follow their sister because they have all this trust in her and they see her as like this beacon of knowledge that they go to. And so it just, it's like, it really shatters their faith and or it doesn't shatter. It kind of shakes things up, which I think, happens at that age too with queer individuals is when we start to question like, ooh, something's different. And I've been taught that this different is bad. Is this really bad? Is the religion bad? Am I bad? Like what's really bad? Like they start questioning. And in most places of faith or refuge that people go to, that should be a time to kind of nurture that questioning because a lot of the prophets and all the scriptures and all that stuff, they usually had a question that they then took to God or Christ or something like that. And they got an answer. So rather than saying questioning their faith is a lack of faith, it should be, I think it should be nurtured and, and encouraged because that will in the end only strengthen their faith. If you think about it, if they start being propped up and being like, you know, questions are good rather than saying, no, nope, you shouldn't question. Cause then they're like, oh, there's must be something weird about that. I, I don't want any part of this anymore. Yeah. I often say that being um, a queer person of faith is an incredible gift, both to you and to your, your spiritual community, because so many straight people never question their faith yet. Every single queer person has to. Mm-hmm. Um, as I have yet to find a religion that people are born into that is completely open and accepting. And, you know, the Episcopal Church, I know, is, is gotten there. And, you know, there are many different denominations that are getting there. But certainly there's nobody my age I know who grew up and didn't have an issue with their spiritual, you know, home. So queer people of faith have had to go through that questioning, right? Like, We had to go through that. He called Peter Pan absolute poppycock. Mm -hmm. Like somebody said something to you that you knew was wrong. And I'm going to bring back my word here, trust, which is like, you have to trust yourself because God made us all. God loves us all. And we know to question things. And being gay is this great gift because we've been taught like, oh, I know I'm loved. And I know that this church is not giving me everything that is completely right. And I know that this world has, there's issues here and it's all because it's human made, but what isn't wrong is God and God's love for me. So it's such a great gift because it really allows you to be critical and in question and then create a deeper faith rather than, you know, have this sort of shallow, like, oh yeah, we go to church on Sundays because it's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find myself so frequently asking like my straight friends at church, like, why haven't you thought about, you know, X, Y, or Z? Like, why haven't you really thought about what that teaching means for you and your family? And what are you going to do about it? And then I'm always like, come on, people ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just brings you closer to the spirit. Like, 
Yeah, no. And in speaking of being closer to the spirit, so after they've kind of had their their faith kind of shake shaken or shook, <laughs> they got shook, shaked up. Yeah, <laughs> um, the essence of what their faith is towards shows up. Peter Pan flies into the window with his trusty he's side. so cool shows up <laughs> when yeah. he's on like it's just so beautiful right mm-hmm. like and he's a little jerk for the majority of this movie but he shows up like over like the chimneys and like i had a chimney like that in my house i used to crawl up there and he was so cool and i'm like you are the coolest thing i've ever seen when i was like 10 <laughs> yeah no and like i completely agree with you about him being a jerk like i feel like he is the worst toxic boyfriend or significant other you could act you could possibly have uh he doesn't he doesn't appreciate he takes for granted he's rude like all that stuff so a lot of the comparisons that i'll have like to like christ and all this stuff later on is basically just him as a form and not necessarily as a personality or characteristic like he's just standing in as 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 a body for for represent representation but yeah he is kind of a kind of a turd (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah whole time <laughs> yeah so him kind of showing up into the window and kind of like kind of like an answer to like their their cry out for for prayers kind of reminded me of certain like other angels that popped up to people namely gabriel to mary and then in the lds faith the angel moroni shows up to joseph smith in the middle of the night in his bedroom so that's kind of something that kind of I was like, oh, this is kind of like an answer to these questions. Like they're sitting there questioning in bed. And then here's like, here, here I am. I'm here to answer anything you have. Again, this is just Peter Pan as a, as a body. He doesn't really answer many of their questions. But we're also introduced to Tinkerbell. And when and I'm going to be double dipping in some of the some of the stuff because in our first episode we talked about kind of Tinkerbell and how she relates to a queer person of faith. But I really love Tinkerbell and the fact that I think she's one of the first fairies in like the Disney canon that is depicting relatable human emotions. Like before this, you had the very prim and proper like princess esque fairies. Mm-hmm. Like they go, oh, here I am. I'm perfect. I'm going to grant you what you want, and then I'll be gone. Tinkerbell is a human. Like, well, she's a pixie, but she has all the human emotions. And I don't think she ever apologizes for any one of them. Like she, she goes through the gambit. She has anger and vanity and jealousy, but then she has loyalty, remorse and sacrifice. So I really think that she is a very great representation of the human, mm-hmm. of our, our journey on this road we call life. Like I, I think that there's certain things that Tinkerbell should be a little less harsh on herself for, especially back in the day. Like she's checking how big her hips are and all that sort of thing. What is the checking of the yeah. hips? I, like it, every time I see it, I'm like, we are so like fish in water who don't even know that we're wet when it comes to sexist messaging. It is. And Tinkerbell, every, I agree completely with everything you've just said. She is a fascinating character because she actually emotes. She doesn't even speak yet. We see her have all of these different emotions. And also, like you said, earlier with Peter showing up and he's sort of like this angel. And I have a whole thing about how Wendy is basically the Virgin Mary. She's even wearing blue, but Tinkerbell shows up. And the first thing Peter says to Wendy is girls talk too much. And we have uh, Wendy or Tinkerbell, sorry, checking out her hips, getting her hips stuck in a drawer. And then we have Wendy rambling on and sewing. And then we have the, the, when Wendy goes to kiss Peter and immediately we're introduced to the sexual jealousy between these two girls, which I find so fascinating that we have 
in this movie that's about like children and escapism and, and innocence and growing up right away. Once the fairies show up, we have sexual jealousy, which is so fascinating to me. Tinkerbell hates Wendy. And we have this, this really problematic messaging of like girls not supporting each other. And that goes throughout this movie. All the girls represent something very different as Wendy goes on to sort of be the, the mother, the virgin mm-hmm. mother. And Tinkerbell is like this feeling sort of sexy, sexualized little creature who as a child, I didn't like her. As an adult now, I'm like, oh yeah, she's cool. She <laughs> yeah. <really like> <laughs> um, but as a child, I was... I would get really upset with her because why would she hate Wendy so much? Like, you're a fairy lady. Come on. (laughs) Want good things for people. And Wendy doesn't do anything wrong ever. But all the women in this movie come after her. And like, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even realize that. But, um, and something else too, it's like when you said about like the, the sexism happening at a young age too, like I was, I was watching it. And so Peter shows up and he, when he wakes up all the kids and then they're all there, they're like, yay. And he's like, well, you, you're growing up. I can't have this. Cause again, it's that the masculinity he goes, let's all go to Neverland. And they're kind of explaining how to get to Neverland. And of course it doesn't work because they're missing one element. And that element is Tinkerbell's pixie dust. Mm-hmm. And so uh, kind of on your theme of kind of like the sexism too, is he doesn't ask Tinkerbell if he could touch her one and two, if he could use something that's precious to her for someone else, he just grabs and yanks and dunks it. He, well, he spanks her. He, he spanks, spanks her too. It's so sexual. Like it's ridiculous. There is so like no consent. He literally grabs her. He spanks her over children. And it's the whole thing looking at it as an adult, you're like, what the oh my is this? <laughs> like yeah. and-, and it's this magical, beautiful thing about flying away and like the lyrics to the song are so poetic but it's kind of perverse that this little boy and he only takes them to neverland not because he cares about them and wants them to experience neverland he wants to take wendy because he doesn't want her to grow up because he doesn't want her to stop telling stories about him yeah <laughs> they, and the boys only go because she's like well they have to come <laughs> yeah so as i'm like re-watching these movies and I'm, I'm doing kind of like a sensitivity check with myself like i'm like am i getting too kind of upset about certain things or am i just letting it go so as i was watching it and saw him spanking tinkerbell i go no this is definitely bad because what if a little kid is watching this and thinks he can do the same thing and i'm like no no little kid's gonna do that and right after i thought that what does Michael do to try and get Nana to fly away with them? He grabs Tinkerbell without asking her and then forces her to give up something that's precious to her. So I was just like, nope, I was right in my thought of thinking that we should not express this to kids. And when we do, we should kind of explain to them that this is not how they go about getting what they want. (laughs) They need to ask for consent first. But now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the beauty of the song. You said that it was basically kind of like this anthem of, of coming out. Yeah, I really think that You Can Fly is absolutely a metaphor for coming out. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you like listen to the lyrics of the song, they're really poetic, you know, like path that moonbeam moon fake, you know, if the world's still awake, like if you have a smile in your heart, these are all beautiful things. And even, you know, what you need to fly, right? Like you need faith, trust, pixie dust, think of beautiful things, and then you can be free. And then it's awesome. Like just them over 
Big Ben, like they change the time, that's probably a problem. (laughs) And then they go off into, you know, space, I guess. But, you know, there was the stars, it's night. They're all dressed in these cute colors. And it's, it's nostalgic. It's this idea of leaving home. Everybody grows up. Everyone wants to escape something as a child. And when you're a kid, for me, like watching that, it's like escaping the homophobia that I was facing at home. And it's just this this beautiful escape knowing that like you can do it right like you have it in yourself to fly to get out and the darlings do it they they get out of there it like lifts so many weights off your shoulders that like you can fly and go it makes me sob like hysterically (laughs) (laughs) yeah no the lyrics that really stood out to me this time around of watching it is the think of all the joy you'll find when you leave the world behind and bid your cares goodbye and that's like it's hard enough to come out but when you you almost have to come out twice because you come out initially and then you have to find yourself Mm -hmm. and then once you find yourself you're like you know what i'm okay okay with this then you come out again and you're like this is who I am and like stamp of approval and that's where you bid your cares goodbye you leave the world you leave all the haters but goodbye and then you literally can fly so yeah I definitely can relate to the feeling of weightlessness and just the joy and like even if you think about it the happiest part of like even a ride is the going up like everyone loves it going up. It's when the fear happens. It's like when you start to drop, that's when you're not. But like that feeling of elation of being lifted up, everyone loves hope. that feeling. It's absolute hope. Everything that they had in London was was not good. And now they are they are leaving it. And it's just such a hope-filled moment. And it, you know, helps that the what you're seeing on the screen is so beautiful. And it's like London in 1901. Like what could be more beautiful than flying over you know, this awesome city and really escaping a, a sad situation? I love the part where Michael, well, I don't love that Michael grabs Tinkerbell and like assaults her, but the idea we were talking earlier, how Nana was like this figure that was mm. protective of the children and he tries to get her to come with them. And he even sprinkles her with pixie dust and she flies up, but she's tethered. It like, I was going obviously with this gay metaphor and I'm thinking about all the people who were trapped in situations where they oh, can't, yeah. where they know who they are. They want to do it, but for whatever reason, it's just not a reality. And for some people it's like, okay, not now, but later. And you read, you know, biographies of individuals who were closeted their entire lives. And that's such a real part of being in the queer community. We have this whole like myriad of stories of everyone's experience. And some of those experiences are ones where you're trapped and you don't get to fly and don't get to go to Neverland. So that really struck me as I saw Nana like waving goodbye to them, thinking about all of those individuals who haven't been as lucky as me to to be able to live the life that I do have and all the sacrifice that has happened in order for us to have the lives that we have now. Oh, my heart just got so warm when you said that because I didn't even I didn't even think of that while watching. Like I'm sad that Nana couldn't go, but the thought of it being all those that don't have the privilege or the access to be their free selves. Oh, oh <laughs> that gave me chills. Yeah. Well, and and knowing that my church is responsible for all yeah. um that's it's so, so sad and it makes me furious. And I don't know if you get I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I get asked all the time, why do you continue practicing Catholicism um, while being a queer person? And my answer hasn't changed in years. My answer is always, I have to stay in my faith because I love my faith and I have to make space for other people who aren't as lucky as me in my own faith. I have to make that space for them. 
Um, and I work with kids. I, I, I work in a school. So I know that by being my authentic self in a Catholic setting and, you know, trying to preach the gospel of God's love is helpful for queer kids because I don't want anyone else to ever feel trapped in the way that Nana is trapped. That's not the future. And that sh- certainly should not be coming from the Catholic church. <laughs> Yeah, no, I always say when when I'm asked that question too, is somewhat along the same vein, but I always say that no one will care if they don't know you're there. So they'll just continue to brush you under the rug saying, oh, well, there's not a problem because there's no no one here of a queer experience. And then you're like, "Uh, no, excuse me. I'm sitting here on the first pew, like saying, you're going to see me. I'm going to wear my rainbow pin every single Sunday. So you see me, visitor, (laughs) like, and you take that back to Utah. (laughs) And so, yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. Being visible, making the space. And in doing that, you have to make change because they can't when you're forced to see this person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, And before we take a, a quick break, one little thing that just came to my mind too, when you talked about him changing the time, and I don't know if this had any relevance or if it's just me thinking about it, but isn't it funny that the last action Peter takes before taking Wendy to Neverland so she won't grow up is basically making her a few minutes older? older. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, he ages her incredibly because she gets to Neverland. Actually, before she gets to Neverland, he's like, great, your mom. <laughs> yeah. But that just thought to me too. He's like, you're ne- he's like, you're never growing up. But I'm gonna make you like five minutes older than you were, <laughs> yeah. and your brothers. <laughs> yeah. So I think right now is a good place to take a quick break. And welcome back from the break. You're listening to Fairy Gospel. And Marianne and I have been discussing Peter Pan through our queer perspective as a person of faith. So Peter Pan has just gone and recruited these children to come with him to Neverland. And who are the first characters of Neverland that we are introduced to? Those gay pirates. (laughs) The gayest pirates in all the land. (laughs) Yeah, you're true about that. Yeah. So when Captain Hook is introduced, he kind of shares his story of how he got his hand cut off by Peter Pan and then thrown to the crocodile, of course. And I thought it was funny that Smee was like, oh, it was just child's play. Child's play. (laughs) But the thing that's the thing that set Hook off was feeding it to the crocodile. He was fine with getting it cut off, but throwing it to the crocodile was too far. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I've been reading all this stuff about pirates, like real pirates and how, first of all, pirates in the 17th century during the golden age of piracy were actually like a pretty gay culture. Even there were like these lesbian pirates and stuff. Um, And it was like pretty common for them to lose body parts and like they would get compensated for those things. So I guess losing a hand as a pirate was more okay for 17th century kind of pirates. But uh, yeah, I was completely like blown away. I had never picked up on that before when Hook, who by the way, is wearing a dress and pink shirt and frills. (laughs) He's one of your classic queer quoted Disney villains is like, oh, yeah, whatever. He chopped off my hand, but how dare he feed it to the crocodile? You're like, I have so many questions. <laughs> like, starting with, why are you in a feud with this annoying boy? <laughs> like, yeah. like, leave. Which is what the other pirates are all telling him. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, like, now I'm thinking, now that you bring this up, why is he in a feud with a little boy? But sometimes we see it in queer culture. I know definitely as a gay man, we see kind of, like, the battles between 
different demographics within the culture. And then even like, quote, older gays and younger gays competing with each other. And maybe Hook is jealous of the freedom that Peter is displaying, like he's probably in a generation that is more accepting of whatever Peter is, we'll say queer. He's in a more accepting queer generation and Captain Hook is jealous of that. So he wants to get rid of that reminder of him suppressing his queerness for so long. And he's just like, you remind me of the pain I went through. You don't know how many people had to sacrifice to get your what you're enjoying right now. Get mm-hmm. out of my face. I think that's kind of what it could be too. And Peter certainly is enjoying. His life is nothing but fun. He lives in a treehouse with a bunch of boys. Like yeah. <laughs> he is living the life. He can fly. He's doing whatever the oh my he wants. And we have Captain Hook here, so bitter, missing like he's missing a limb and just wanting to get this kid. Also, Smee is very funny. I always forget how funny he is, but he's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was kind of looking at the kind of the panic and anxiety that Hook gets every time he hears the crocodile approaching. And I was like, this could be compared to the fear we feel from kind of narrow-sighted teachings that we receive when we're growing up. And we're kind of always on the lookout for not expressing kind of our queerness around certain individuals. And then it also could be the fear that we feel from past transgressions that we committed while finding our authentic selves. Like, I don't know if you went on kind of like a a self-discovery journey. I kind of took a step away from the LDS church for about seven years to kind of like find myself. And then when I came back every once in a while, like when I'm telling stories about like a drunken night out or a sexual conquest or something like that, I kind of get like, oops, oops, I feel really bad about this, but I shouldn't feel ashamed of like my past quote unquote transgressions because the best thing to do is to just put my faith and my trust in a higher being when I turn to them for comfort because living in this constant state of paranoia will ultimately overtake me kind of like what the crocodile does in in the end is to not be so hard on myself for the things that I did on this journey to where I am now. Yeah, I like that metaphor. I like that of like the crocodile being kind of this reminder of of, uh, this sort of self-loathing thing. I'm very lucky. My coming out journey with my my faith journey, I never, ever left the Catholic church. Um, I've been very mad at it. (laughs) Like I've gone through periods of like just anger, but I, I never took a step back on like many queer Catholics who have, because I know that at the end of the day, I've always been so convinced of God's love for me. And I know that God loves me and knows me so deeply and so like true, right? Like no one knows me better than God. And I know that like God didn't make me this way by mistake. So I've never, and I'm lucky in that feeling, right? I spend a lot of time trying to convince other gay people of that. But it's like, I know that I've made mistakes, but I also know that God doesn't care or like God loves me for everything that I am. But your story is some one that is so common, right? And like that guilt. I mean, we hear a lot about Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt, like that guilt that you're mm-hmm. given as a child from your faith. It, it does stalk you. It does. Yeah, like uh, from even the the Broadway play Book of Mormon, there's a whole song titled Spooky Mormon Spooky Hell Dream. <laughs> which is like you lied about a donut. Yes, that's how that's how minuscule this guilt gets is like I lied about a donut. Now I'm going to burn for all eternity. But Can't yeah, Jesus called me a dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we are introduced to the pirates and then Peter Pan and the, the kids, they enter and they're kind of looking around and then the pirates notice that he's entered the island again and so they attack and they fire 
And so Tink, what is Tink given the task of? So amazingly, they get to this island with no adults. Immediately, the only adults there try to murder them. Awesome. (laughs) And Tinkerbell is asked to take Wendy and the boys to the island while Peter Pan distracts Hook. And she does a terrible job. She flies so fast. (laughs) She gets to the Lost Boys, who have they scalped woodland creatures for their outfits? (laughs) Where did they get those? (laughs) She rallies the Lost Boys up, tells them to shoot down the Wendy bird. They come back. Wendy and the boys are flying in. And she almost has them murdered. (laughs) But Peter comes in at the last minute and saves Wendy. She literally is like, oh, Peter, you saved my life. And every little girl in the world is like, oh, heart eyes. And then he calls them all a bunch of blockheads, which is a great insult and one that I would like to bring back. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's kind of like intellectual, but it doesn't hurt because you're like, ow. But I guess you're kind of true. <laughs> it's like how Disney villains always say fools. I'm oh, yeah. Really like my classroom a few years ago, I started calling my students fools whenever <laughs> they were acting silly. And they love it because it's not really, it's not really mean. <laughs> it's almost it's like, of- it's like a teehee, I guess I was acting up. I'll be yeah. better now, I promise. <laughs> but I, I really am enjoying Blockhead. It's going to bring that one back too. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately he was a little harsher on Tinkerbell because what happens to Tinkerbell? He banishes her for the rest of her life, but then he amends it to, I think, a week <laughs> Yeah, but why does he amend it? Because she gets mad at him, right? Oh, no, because Wendy says to. Yeah, Wendy's like, oh, Peter. And he's like, oh, that's right. But again, we have this sexual jealousy thing going on where, like, as a kid, I hated Tinkerbell for this. And I was like, she should be. She almost killed them. Like, she wanted to murder those kids. Meanwhile, Wendy, this, like, virgin mother figure, is the, the figure of, like, peace and love and kindness and mercy, which are all qualities that we ascribe to our dear heavenly mother, Mary. Yes. And when Tinkerbell gets banished, it is for a rightful reason for attempted murder, basically. <laughs> but as as she's being banished and the hurt she feels afterwards, I, I think this is similar to kind of queer people of faith being banned or excommunicated when their efforts of inclusivity is seen as too disruptive. And though, again, Tinkerbell's reasons was attempted murder, but I almost, I could relate to her being like, oh my gosh, this is all I ever known are you seriously, you're kicking me out for all I've done for you and everything that we've had together over some 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 new doctrine or some new whatever, like, ouch. And then she flies away hurt and she doesn't even hear the amendment to it because she is so hurt. And sometimes that's what happens to queer people of faith on their way out the door is they they don't want to ever have anything to do with that religious institution again, even if they end up changing their doctrine and they're like, oh, wait, come back. They've, they're already gone. They're like, bye. And so I could really relate to Tinkerbell when it came to that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That idea of being banished and, you know, some people are banished because they have actually been told to leave. You know, we hear stories all the time about, especially Catholic educators, or maybe I just pick up on those stories because I am a Catholic educator, of people being fired from their jobs for coming out as, as queer or whatever. And whenever I hear stories of individuals who are like, I refuse to go back, I am not part of that faith anymore, my response is always like, nor should you. Like, if you've been burned that badly, and that is awful, it should never have happened, but you don't owe them anything. And if you want to go back, you should for yourself, but you should never, ever feel guilt for leaving or feel like you've done something wrong. Because when you are treated with such spiritual violence, you have to take care of yourself first and foremost, because that is ultimately what 
God would want you to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're the one he loves. You have to take care of yourself. So poor Tink, off she goes, super, super pissed off. And I find it so interesting that the little girl who's literally a mother <laughs> is the one who's like, no, we have to, we have to be merciful toward her. And in my absolute lowest, when I came out and faced horrible consequences for it, the thing that tethered me to my faith was my relationship with with Mary, with the mother of God. I've always had a, a good relationship with her, I think, because she's like a young woman and she's told this kind of crazy thing. And I don't know how how the Mormons sort of worship Mary, but she's a big figure in Catholicism. And Mary is told this kind of crazy thing, right? Like you're haven't had sex, you're a virgin, yet you're pregnant with God's child. That's cuckoo bananas. And Mary says, yes. She says, yes, I will do this. And it is such a brave move. It is such a courageous thing that she decides to do this in like first century Palestine, where she could have been murdered for becoming pregnant in the circumstance that she was living. But she was so fierce in saying yes. And in being the person that God like wanted her to be that God said she was, she accepted that. And in so many ways, that's true for being queer as well, right? Like we are the person God made and it's on us to say yes and do it. And Mary is known for being kind and merciful. And that's who Wendy is, right? She's this little girl who is kind and merciful, is always trying to take care of everybody. And she is saying yes to who she is by going on this adventure with this boy who's actually kind of an... Oh my! Yeah. Makes life really hard for her. And Jesus makes life really hard for Mary. Like she did not have an easy time of it. Uh, By the time she was like, what, 47 or something, her son is being murdered by the state. Like that sucks. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I'm really glad that you're bringing up the Virgin Mary because I kind of got an inkling of that, but it now is like right in my face of like how they compare Wendy to the Virgin Mary because this isn't the first time she'll show mercy going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And she's constantly being told she's a mother with all these children, yet we know she's a virgin because she's a little girl. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> so, and I'm going to touch upon kind of the, the LDS, their beliefs on heavenly mother. Cause I know I've expressed that to you before and you were kind of curious about it, but I'm going to save that for when we talk about when she's singing her mother song, <laughs> because we're about to enter some um, kind of sticky territory right now because sure uh, <laughs> after, after um, Tink is banished, it's now to sightsee. The tourists want to sightsee. So Wendy and Peter go see the mermaids and what unfortunately do Michael and John and the lost boys go to do? Uh, So Wendy goes to see the mermaids. There's some fun sexism that happens over there, but John who has never been to Neverland before is given the task of being the leader to lead the lost boys who live there to go capture the engines, um, which is so problematic. And I did, I will say like, when they're singing that song and they're like plodding around the Neverland and it's very adorable. I did get some like Jesus and disciples vibes where like they're off to do a task and they're kind of like fools, <laughs> like rambling around, not really sure how to go about doing it. And then like John is trying to lead them all. He's even wearing white and you have Michael who's like, guys, guys, like something bad is about to happen. And then something bad does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, that they're captured. But then we have to talk, obviously, about the depiction of the Native people in this film and just how hideously racist it is. And, like, just the way, like, they say we're off to fight the Indians. That's your first sign of this is terrible. And John even says, the Indian is cunning but not intelligent. Therefore, we simply surround them and take them by surprise. 
And it is funny that then the exact opposite happens to them. Like they're surrounded and taken by surprise. But like, I can't believe we have this movie with that line, like the Indian is cunning, but not intelligent. Like it's just so hideously problematic. And then it just gets worse. From there. Oh, yeah, it gets extremely worse. And at, at this point, it is such a, and I'm not, I'm not justifying anything, but it is such a, a, like a canon of culture too, of like this movie is like, when you think of Disney, you think of Peter Pan, and it's just so ingrained that I'm curious to see how Disney takes it from this point, but they've already started kind of mm-hmm. repairing the damage that they've done. Like they now have this, have this advisory slide on certain Disney movies. I, I saw it on Aladdin so far. I saw it on Dumbo so far, rightfully so. I saw it on Peter Pan. But they say this program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. I'm, I'm glad they said that. Yeah. Like they were owning up to the fact that, oh, it was a product of its time. They're like, no, even if it was a product of its time, it was wrong and we're saying it was wrong and it's wrong and then wrong now. So I was really glad to see that sentence. And then they said, rather than remove this content, like hiding it, like kind of like, oh, we never did it. We want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. And then it says Disney is committed to cre- committed to creating stories with inspirational and aspirational themes that reflect the rich diversity of the human experience around the globe. And then they give, I didn't know this website existed, but then they give kind of like a Disney.com slash story matters, which it looks like it's in its very beginning stages of bringing in outside people to kind of really help them guide them on their storytelling. So that way they don't have like the Disney bias or the B- Disney blinders on, like they are really going to these people who are experts in their culture, in their their demographic. They've got LGBTQ, they've got disabilities, they've got all these things. And from what I saw in this this website, it looks like it, it is in its development phase, but I'm glad it's heading in that right direction. And they even broke down like the certain movies so far mm-hmm. that they have these this advisory on and why that they have these advisories on them. And for Peter Pan, it says, this is wrong because the film portrays native people in a stereotypical manner that reflects neither the, neither the diversity of native peoples nor their authentic cultural traditions. Like they've lumped all of the native people into this one depiction, which is one dimensional. And so they say, it shows them speaking an unintelligible language and repeatedly refers to them as redskins, an offensive term. Peter and the Lost Boys engage in dancing, wearing headdresses, and other exaggerated tropes, a form of mockery and appropriation of Native people's culture and imagery. Yeah, Disney's definitely trying. They are trying, and I think everything that, you know, that's on that website, and I, I everything that I've seen lately has been quite good. And if you, you know, you could probably have a whole other podcast about racism in Disney and how they've handled these issues. And I am grateful that they seem to be consulting actual experts and really trying to have an intelligent conversation and and move forward with this. But, you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that this is on Disney Plus, which tons of children are going to tune in and kids can't really read when they're watching Peter Pan. So I think it's really prudent that we continue to force these conversations um, in schools with parents, because you can't just pop on one of these movies for your kids these days. It needs to be uh, coupled with something else with a larger conversation about, well, why is this, why is this wrong? Like, why is this not something that you want to either do or copy and, uh, or even say, right. Can you imagine a child going to school and singing the lyrics to that song? So it, it, I still think they need more, um, but they're certainly on the right track. 
I have so many questions for Disney, like what happened to Song of the South, huh? Yeah, yeah. When's that rebrand of Splash Mountain coming? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm almost thinking that like there's certain ones, and I'm I feel really bad for saying this. There's certain ones that where they could kind of put this kind of band aid on while they kind of work things out. But I think Song of the South is so wrong it's on so. Bad. I've never seen it because like I can't. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's so wrong on so many levels that I think they really have to work that out on whether it can even be salvaged or if they need to legit have like a, a featurette before it's even shown saying this is why it's wrong. <laughs> like I think there's so much that needs to be worked out before because I think if they want to do it right, they have to go about it the right way. One thing that popped into my head is kind of like from a religious standpoint is kind of how um, kind of John's way of describing them is kind of sometimes how the Christian missionaries kind of encountered the native people when they came and they forced the religion on them thinking that these were savages that they were coming across and they needed to save them. And the only way to save them was their religion. And, and in doing so, they caused a lot more harm than if they had kind of found a middle ground of like, cause if you look at these kind of like old like any sort of older culture or native culture they have some crossovers between certain deities they just called them by a different name and that sort of thing so i wonder how much more of a partnership could have been had if they had just listened to their their traditions and their religions and then like you know what that's kind of like ours would be would you be okay with like maybe changing a name it's the same figure just maybe a name that you or something like that like i this is just me kind of riffing or off the top of my head but like i wonder what our nation could have been like if there's a lot more compromise than it's our way or get out well we were you know part of the american dream there was bringing your stuff over and forcing it on others. I know that, um, so there's the school I work with, that I work at, I also am an alum of the school. So I'm seeped into that particular school's history and everything. And we are, we're run by a religious order of nuns, right? So we have this religious order of nuns that started in 1800 in France. And we have two saints in the order, which is highly unusual. Most uh, female orders don't have one saint, let alone two. So we do have two saints. And the first one is Madeline Sophie, who started the society. And the second one was Philippine Duchenne, who's become in the last few years, a really interesting and problematic figure. In 1818, she had this missionary zeal. She's a French woman. She came from a fairly affluent family in France. Um, She had this zeal to come to the Americas to work with the savages. She wanted to educate them to get them into heaven. The whole idea of the society, their like their vocation, their mission is to spread the love of God, right? And to make God's love known in the world. And she wanted to do this by bringing that to uh to the Indians, um which is what she called them, not what I call them. Yeah. So she traveled over here in 1818 on like a little boat and then went up the Mississippi River and started the first sacred school and actually the first free school west of the Mississippi in 1818, the Academy of the Sacred Heart, the school's still there. And interestingly, when she got there, the Bishop of St. Louis, so the head Catholic concho of the area as a welcome to St. Louis present, gave her a slave. So she gave her a little slave girl and this French woman was like, uh, okay. And then she founded these schools. She worked with like the children of pioneers. She was a pioneer woman. And then she eventually got to go to work with the Potawatomi Indians in what is now Kansas on a reservation there. And when she got there, she couldn't learn their language, but she sat there and they called her the woman who prays always because she just prayed for the people. 
And at this point, she was much older, and I think she had learned some things because the Potawatomi had uh, just ended what they called the Trail of Death because so many of them had been evacuated uh, through some campaign from the American government into this new reservation, this new area, and so many of them had died. And Philippine got to this reservation, and she wanted to like make them Catholic. But in getting there, she realized there was so much devastation in the community. And that's what happened to natives, right? Like Western society came, Western culture came, and we devastated those societies and cultures. And I think your point is really interesting. Like, what if it was a partnership, right? Like, what if the Thanksgiving story was actually real? It's just this sort of complete takeover. I mean, if you look at the way Christianity spread, Christmas is not a Christian thing, right? That was a pagan festival that we sort of combined and tricked them into into believing or celebrating or what have you. So I think that's actually really interesting. And we see nowadays, and at least Catholic services, especially ones out West and in areas where there are more Native peoples, um, we see a lot of like land acknowledgements, a lot of prayers that are borrowed from different Native peoples. And there's a much more, it's much more unifying than I think it would have been in the past, uh, especially in our society, since we have this connection with the Potawatomi people. We had the 200, in 2018, we celebrated 200 years of Sacred Heart in in America. And we actually had like the mass uh, Potawatomi like processed in and they played like Potawatomi instruments. And um, I got to go on a mission or not a mission. I got to go on a pilgrimage to with some Potawatomi uh, where Philippine was out in Kansas. And it was actually really, really neat because we're sort of trying to heal that, you know, awful, awful scar in our, in our history. What's interesting about Peter Pan though, is it's an American movie, right? Like this was made by Americans, but these characters, the Indians are, came from a British guy, like J.M. Barry, like in 1901 with very little knowledge of what was happening over here, created these characters, which just shows how deep and how like pervasive this kind of terrible sort of version of Native peoples goes, right? Like, obviously, the UK had relations with the US, right? They were the ones who came over and started this awful behavior. But for it to get back to like these kids playing in 1901 with J.M. Barry just shows how pervasive these negative stereotypes went and for how long been going around. And I don't want to speak on behalf of the cultures that it's disrespecting, but all we can do now is just like continually talking about it. Like no more kind of shying away and being like, oof, that makes me uncomfortable. Let's just fast forward through this the scene or let's just not talk about it because I don't want to talk about my kids because I don't know how to. It's just, I think we need to start having those discussions because it is in the same vein as like the queer discussions as well. Like I'm sure talking to your kids about queer uh, individuals is uncomfortable to certain people, especially within religious institutions. And it's just, there's nothing good comes out of shying away from difficult conversations. Like just power through it. And it actually, you get more healing on the other side. Yeah. And we, we must do better. We must do better, especially with the depiction of, of Native peoples. We can't solve all of Disney's <laughs> racist problems in one episode, but I think we did a, a pretty pretty decent job at least acknowledging what we can to do better. So I again, we could talk about it all day long, but I want to I want to get some time in for for the rest of for rest of our discussion. So basically, we're going to skip to Tinkerbell being tempted to betray Peter Pan, which I think this is where kind of I'm glad you brought up. Jesus and the his 12 apostles or disciples following him and sort of like that. Because I also saw Peter as kind of like a Christ-like figure in in form only, 
not in characteristics and his lost boys and Tinkerbell being kind of like his disciples or apostles and mm-hmm. Tinkerbell being kind of Judas in this sort of scenario because she gets tempted into betraying Peter Pan, kind of like what, what Judas did to, to Christ and basically ends up leading to his murder. But fortunately for Peter Pan, he doesn't get murdered in this. And fortunately for Tinkerbell, she's able to redeem herself and kind of like repent from, from her ways. Of silver or anything. <laughs> yeah, but it, but she was manipulated by Hook and her vulnerability, which is kind of sometimes what happens to queer people of faith when they're kind of discovering themselves as people, like when they hear that one, you're freshly out, and two, you just were quote unquote released from this very conservative of religion, the wolves come out in droves. I know when I first like moved from my town in Washington State to New York City and was like, I'm new in New York and I'm freshly out. And when they kind of hear more about me, it almost becomes kind of like a a token or like a like a, an accomplishment for this person to kind of deflower this kind of virtuous being. And that kind of is what Hook is doing to Tinkerbell is he sees her in her vulnerable. She's just been cast out of her group of people she's only known. And he's there right to like swoop in and get what he wants out of her. And so I kind of was like, that kind of like as, was a depiction of kind of like the wolf in sheep's clothing that kind of come around when these vulnerable beings come out of, of this church that kind of kick them out. Time, stories like that that make me so grateful to be a lesbian and not a gay man because we are a much more loving community in so many ways. But no, that that scene where he's just manipulating her and he's playing the harpsichord and he's so cool with his gold hook mm-hmm. and he's just manipulating her and her absolute, like the thing that is really upsetting her, which is her jealousy of Wendy. And that's how he, what he uses to get her to, to give up Peter who is in so many ways like Jesus. Like when you actually read the the gospels, Jesus isn't this perfect virtuous guy. He does all kinds of weird crap. Um, And if you read the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is one of the Gnostic gospels, it's about Jesus. It's not like, scripture but um it's jesus as a little boy he in that story he kills a kid because he gets mad so like i kind of like jesus sometimes being completely human and doing human things and there is something to be said for for peter having all this power right he can fly he's the most important popular person he has this like youthful nonsense and and jesus in so many ways has that too because he is all-knowing not all-knowing but he's all-powerful and he does make mistakes. I think it's the gospel of Mark that he curses a fig tree because he didn't like it. So <laughs> Jesus isn't like this, you know, perfect godly figure. I mean, he is in that he's completely God, but he also is completely human. And I think that like, we have to remember that in, in so many ways, Peter Pan is very much like Jesus in this story with all his male friends and like a couple female friends that we pretend aren't there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side of that, of Peter being Jesus, we have, like you've already compared Wendy to to Mary, the Virgin Mary. And I kind of compared her to uh, Mother in Heaven or Heavenly Mother. And as I described on, I think I was talking with my friend Jensen on, on this podcast for Pinocchio, is we believe that there's a Heavenly Father and there's a Heavenly Mother, the LDS religion does. And we find that she is so sacred that there's not much on her, which I think is unfortunate because I, I feel like there needs to be more depictions of women with names in the, the Gospels because, again, representation matters. 
and you have all these men's name, all these men's names, but very few like women actually called out by name. And sometimes, sometimes they're just really brushed over. Like they aren't given the full narrative that they need, but this is just kind of like from our, our gospel topics that kind of break down certain things. Uh, we say the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. This understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God, our relationship to deity, and the godly potential of men and women. The doctrine of a heavenly mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. So it's basically what they're saying, and there's deep doctrine that goes even further in, like, I don't even wrap my head around it sometimes, but it's basically, we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, and us as human beings, we can aspire to be and eventually become a heavenly father and a heavenly mother ourselves in the afterlife and then create our own kind of existence after that. So that's basically what it is, is there is a heavenly father and a heavenly mother because on this earth, we have a father and a mother. So we're supposed to mimic how they are. So of course they have a a relationship in heaven. So we're going to have it here on earth too. How that enters into like the queer kind of narrative, I'm not quite sure, but that's kind of what the LDS believe is there is a heavenly mother to complement heavenly father and they work together as a partnership to take care of their children on, on earth. Interesting. Yeah, no, Catholics believe that God doesn't have gender. So like we say father and we say he to sort of humanize God to help us understand who God is, but God doesn't have gender. So God wouldn't have heavenly mother. We do believe Mary is in heaven, right? And Mary is in heaven, body and soul. So like she was assumed into heaven. So she's up there and she loves us and takes care of us, takes care of us. Um, and she is in every way, like our spiritual mother, but she's not in a relationship with God in any way, really, because I mean, she is and that she like knows and loves God, but yeah. um, God isn't like human in the way that Mary is absolutely human. And one of the things I, I so love about being Catholic is that we do have this sort of female Marian figure. Also the Holy Spirit, we tend to say is a very feminine, you know, part of the the Trinity, right? We have, we have God, mm-hmm. the Father, Christ, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is oftentimes referred to as a female energy or a female part of God. But we also have the saints. And saints are humans huh, who we, basically they become a saint when it's confirmed to us that they're in heaven. And they're examples for us how to live our lives. And saints make mistakes. Saints are completely human. So they're not perfect. I was telling you about Philippine Duchenne earlier who was given a person to be her slave and wanted to save the savages. But she had so much love for the world and she started so many wonderful good things we know that she's in heaven because of different, you know, Catholic-y things that I <laughs> are boring. And she, you know, she's this this figure that we can look to, right? We're not perfect. We're humans as well. Um, but we can always try to do our best and, and try to be the people that God loves um, and knows. So that's one of my favorite things about being Catholic is having all these female role models that you have to kind of look for. Cause don't get me wrong. Catholicism is incredibly sexist. Um, but we do have these, these sort of women. I also love, and this comes back to Peter Pan when Christ rose, who heard, right? Like who found out that Christ had risen? It was the women. It was, it was Mary Magdalene uh, and uh, the other Mary and Martha's mo- Yeah. Yeah. It was Mary Magdalene and her friends who knows the truth here. It's Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell's the one who's like, don't open that. 
Um, Wendy also knows the truth. I mean, she was captured, but we have the women are the ones in this story who know what's going on and are trying to save these idiot boys from their problems. Wendy's also the one who shows the most courage by like saying that she will walk the plank. She will stand up for what's right. And we see that uh, happening in the gospels. It's always the women who know the truth. It's always the women who are urging the men to, to do the right thing and to believe in the right thing. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that you were talking about that sort of train of thought and the the saints being human and stuff like that because that is a nice segue into kind of the redemption of Tinkerbell. So she knows she's put Peter Pan in this dangerous situation, and when she hears what's going to happen, she uses all her strength to kind of shatter out of there and go to his side. And uh, this is kind of like the atonement or the the resurrection that happened is someone had to die. And in this case, it was Tinkerbell in the plays she does for a little bit. And then we, we bring her back to life with our claps and uh, saying, I believe Disney decided to cross over that gruesome. (laughs) They'll have racist Indians, but they won't show a poor Tinkerbell dying. (laughs) Yeah. But so she basically was able to redeem herself by sacrificing herself, bringing about Peter's salvation and then doing so that death that occurred allowed Peter to bring about the lost boys and Wendy's salvation um, because he was able to come to their aid. And I love how you said that Wendy's the one that shows the most courage because she walks the plank trusting that staying true to her beliefs and her character will bring about her salvation. Like she doesn't even know Peter's free at this point. She's just like, you know what? I'm going to stick to what I believe in. And if I die, I die. If I, but I know it's not my time to go yet. So she closed her eyes. I don't know if you did this as a little kid. I did it because I had like a wooden deck in my backyard. And of course it had like the wooden plank where you pretended to like walk. I unfortunately scraped my back on it because I had my eyes closed and I didn't see the end of the plank. And I went, shoom. But anyways, did you ever pretend you were walking the plank as a little girl after seeing um, Peter Pan? Boats, yes. Off of like into water. I okay. yes. For, <laughs> what I did more often though, like the like what I really remember was pretending to be Ariel on like rocks in the beach. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, you you and every gay little boy within five feet of a rock. <laughs> I know, just like it's me. Okay. Also, people are a movies, so like our generation. So Peter Pan gets on the boat and he frees everyone and then basically kicks all the pirates off. And then he, this is the first time he ever, I don't know, is it because, so this is funny. This just came to me now is he's been this bratty little boy, but until he gets into a position of authority, the captain of a ship, which is an adult persona, he starts being nice again, which is everything that he was fighting against. And so this is the Peter I was hoping for the entire movie is this gracious captain that takes these people home because they request it. And he even asks consent for Tinkerbell for her fairy dust. So it's like we've come full circle. It's a beautiful moment where you're like, oh, finally, you have fulfilled the dream. You are who I wanted you to be this whole time. But it's interesting to me that he could only do that once he's dressed up in a costume. Oh. Like, he's not, it's not real. <laughs> you know, Peter didn't grow up. Peter is playing growing up. Peter knows what the right thing to do is, as so many children do, but he's pure id, right? So he's going to go back to messing around, doing whatever he wants. But in that moment, he has the capacity to, to do the right thing and to be the person that he, that everyone really wants him to be in the way that so many kids do, right? Like I work with sixth graders. Peter is stuck at like an 11 year old's 
head. And that's what they're like. They have great capacity for being incredibly kind, empathetic, generous, wonderful, wonderful people. But they're also driven by that id, which is Peter. Yeah, no, it's kind of like uh, the the Sour Patch Kids commercials where they're at first they're sour, then they're sweet. That's that's what that made me think of. Yep. No, it's it's such an accurate depiction of like a, of like an eleven year old. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what they're like. They're complete jerks who have great capacity for being wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Marianne, do you want to take us home with how this wonderful film ends? So they're in the pirate ship and they're flying back to London. And then what is the finale of this, this film? Oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? Right. When they fly back in the, in the boat and the song plays, the darling parents come back to their children. Their children are asleep in their beds, but Wendy has fallen asleep somehow and they find her in that beautiful window. Um, They wake her up and she tells them everything. (laughs) She tells her parents everything that happened and they kind of listen to her. They think it's a dream. The whole thing is is really very charming. Um, the mom decides, mom and dad and going up there, they sort of say, you know, I'm so glad you decided that she can stay in the nursery. After all, she is still a child. But Wendy's all like, I'm ready. I'm ready to grow up after her experiences in Neverland. And then it ends with the three of them looking out the window and the dad saying, as they see the ship, you know, fly back in the clouds to Neverland saying, you know, he's smiling that he's, he remembers that ship, right? I can't, I didn't write down the exact line that he says. I know Wendy says he's really wonderful, isn't he? And I wrote, Wendy's still taken by this jerk. um, (laughs) Like see how he flies the ship and then they like look at it and the dad's like, oh, I remember that ship. And it's, it's such a beautiful moment of this family coming together with this understanding of, you know, what they sort of know about themselves more. They all know themselves a little bit better especially Wendy right and in that knowledge of herself she also gets her parents loving and accepting her for who she is which is how the movie ends and it's so beautiful and so unrealistic but I love it <laughs> yeah no but I think it's it, it is somewhat in, not realistic but at the same time I think it is realistic if you allow certain people time to kind of grow into themselves and to listen to who they think that they are authentically and then to give your parents time or whoever's parents time to kind of grow into understanding and all that sort of thing. Yes, this happened over the space of a night where they're able to wrap it up in a nice little bow at the end. But I really think that it's possible where it just takes time and understanding. And like you said, they were listening to Wendy rather than him saying, no, this is poppycock. Mm -hmm. He realized that I used to believe these things before. And maybe he, he kind of was reacquainted with his faith and it kind of calmed him down being like, you know what? I remember what it's like to be this age and to believe these things. I'm going to kind of let her kind of find herself, which is my hope for all parents to do when it comes to their queer children and then queer children of faith as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, and all their children, right? Like, I think that it hits us as queer people the most because, or not the most, but a lot, right? Because we are different from our parents. I think it's so fascinating, right? That like queer people are not raised by other queer people. Almost every other minority group, for the most part, is raised by other members of that group, but we're not. So there's always this chasm of difference between us and our parents. And it's so important for parents of queer kids to really see and love their child for the person that that child is. And it's important that you do that for your kid, no matter what, because every kid is special and unique and different, but that's especially true for your queer kids. 
And it's such a hard lesson. And so many, like, I don't know um, about Mormons, but I know that Catholics are, we have many organizations that are marketed toward the parents of LGBTQ children. And we actually get into churches and are able to talk about LGBTQ stuff more effectively when we're talking to the parents of these people, because that's really where I think the change needs to happen. And seeing and loving your child for who they are is the first step into making faith a a safe space because we get faith from our parents and they're the ones that have to make that change. And we do see it happen with George and Moira Darling or whatever the mom's first name is. (laughs) And it's, it's really very lovely. Yeah, no, in the LDS faith as well, that is becoming a huge boom right now, especially uh, we had this policy that was released in November 2015, which basically was stating that same-sex, I, I hate same-sex attracted, I hate that term, but like same-gendered yeah, yeah. same, same gender couples that were married were on the same level as rapists and pedophiles. Like it was that level of apostasy. And so mm-hmm. that was a that was in a handbook and then that was leaked to like the public. And it was like a crisis of faith for everyone, both queer and straight members. They're like, this doesn't seem right. Like mm-hmm. something's off. So ever since that was then repealed, there's been huge campaigns to bring understanding to parents, to children, to leaders. Like it's been an all hands on deck sort of thing, which I'm really grateful to see because that's, it needs to be had because there is so much hurt that has been done by the LDS church and I'm sure by other churches as well that they really need to kind of start to remedy. Oh, yes. Um, There's a sort of celebrity Catholic priest who I know, his name is Jim Martin. He just wrote a book, not just, like two years ago, he wrote a book called Building a Bridge, How the Catholic Church and the LGBTQ Community or the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Conversation of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. And he, in the book, states very, very clearly that the building of a bridge, the onus of that building has to land on the church because it is not on us, the hurt people, the queer community that has been completely rejected by the church. It's not on us to fix this relationship. The church has to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has, you know, created, at least in liberal Catholic circles, there's a lot of discussion now about how to, you know, amend or or go about with the teaching that the church has, which is that same-sex attraction, which hate the term, uh, so problematic. But what the catechism, which is like the rule book for Catholicism says is that it's intrinsically disordered, which is a very fancy way of saying you are wrong as a person. Mm-hmm. There is something wrong with you. And that is just so awful. Like to have that as an official teaching is so awful. So there's a lot of pushback against that particular teaching. And there's a lot of emphasis on, well, actually the Catholic church really is very strong in its belief that God made us exactly who we are. There's nothing wrong with us and God loves us for who we are. So this man-made human-made structure of the church, which is homophobic, sexist, racist, all the terrible things is actually wrong. So I spent quite a lot of my life (laughs) dedicated to spreading that message. (laughs) Yeah, no. And it's, 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 it's a, it's a hard mission for people who don't want to hear it, but I, I am impressed that you're taking it on and I hope more people kind of take it on as well. Hey, you too. You should really (laughs) like write a book. Are there books out there about being gay and Mormon? Oh yeah, yeah. So I would just be one one drop in the bucket at this point, but <laughs> maybe maybe down the road. <laughs> do it, do it. Yeah, and and speaking of books, I think we have reached the end of this story. So we will close the book on Peter Pan. 
And we're going to take another short break. And afterwards, we're going to share what we feel the moral of the story is based on our conversation. So let's take a quick break. And welcome back from the break. Marianne and I have been discussing, or we just got finished discussing, Peter Pan through our queer perspective. So Marianne, based on our discussion today, what do you feel your moral for this story is? So my moral is uh, trust yourself. God knows you. God loves you. God's love is unconditional. And once you love and trust yourself the way God does, then you can fly. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, My moral for this story is... There's a lot of things in common with people that we see that are different. Like, uh, I think our discussion on the Native people and their religion and just kind of like grouping them all into one, which is really, really bad for on Disney's part. But we should see what we have in common with other cultures, other religions. And I love this conversation that I had with you about your Catholicism and my LDS faith. Like, we have a lot in common. And to really see the commonalities amongst the differences and just take everything together and then make that the essence of how we want to go forward in our faith. Nice. Love it. And listeners out there, if you would like to send in your thoughts on what we discussed today, feel free to send it to our Gmail account. We are fairy gospel. Remember two L's at gmail.com. You can find us on social. We are at fairy underscore gospel on Instagram and then fairy gospel one word on Facebook and Twitter. And I guess the last thing we have to do is to say goodbye to our listeners. So just want to say listeners out there, thank you for listening. And remember that it's a world of hope in the holy house of mouse. See you real soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fairy Gospel. Fairy Gospel is a Love is Spoken Queer production and an unofficial Disney podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, send us an email to fairygospel at gmail.com or direct message on Instagram. We're at fairy underscore gospel. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching at fairy gospel, one word. Feel free to share the love by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you're subscribed while you're at it. Again, thanks for listening and we'll see you real soon.